Secret Satan. A seasonal murder mystery in 24 episodes. Written by Tobias Sturt and read by John Millington. Chapter 13. So there I was, sitting at my desk, diligently grafting, reading emails, updating Kanban boards, making notes and not doing a scrap of work. I wasn't even logged into my own account. I was, in fact, logged into the still-live account of a dead man, the late and not at all lamented Tony Flint. But I wasn't doing his work either. What I was doing was discovering just how much work Ali Shepard had been doing. She told me, in a drunken moment of sincerity, that most of her job, prior to me finding the dead man on the floor of the pub gents, had been tidying up after Tony, and she'd not been kidding. Just his email sent folder was messy enough. In every sense. Years ago, Ali instituted a folder and file structure for our team in an attempt to make sure everyone could always know what they were supposed to be working on, find what they were supposed to be working on, and, most importantly, be sure that they had the most up-to-date version of whatever it was. I'll leave you to imagine the series of improbable disasters that led to this decree. Personally, I thought this was brilliant. I welcome any kind of organisation that I can get imposed on me in the hopes that one day I might reach the point that I know what I'm doing. Everyone else did some mixture of grumbling and grudgingly acquiescing. Except Tony. If anything, he got more belligerently disorganised and chaotic than before. Files were saved in random places with names like Temp and 1234 and Stuff. Tasks were unticked, cards were not updated, workflows were damned as Tony beavered on getting in everyone else's way. And his own environment wasn't any better. Random icons piled up across his desktop like dead leaves in autumn. My documents was empty but downloads overflowed, and his inbox was more like a litter tray. It took me days to sort through it, days when I should have been helping with Dick Ball's Christmas cards. But Orgean, though the task was, every so often a glinting nugget would appear through the swirling filth. For a start, it didn't look like Radu had been making anything up. I hadn't yet checked for any of the insulting comment on his code that Radu had alleged, but if Tony's emails to him were anything to go by, I doubted they were helpful. He knew about Edie and Ned's affair too, and had been making demands of them both, separately, threatening to share what he knew with the others, like Edie's husband, for one. Perhaps that's where he got the money to lend to Sue for her unwise auction purchases, loans she wasn't likely to be repaying any time soon, given the rates of interest he was charging. This is not to mention the endless complaints about him, from him, around him, a permanent swirl of arguing and debating between him and Ali and HR and now Dick Balls, who generally sided with Tony, I noticed. In fact, Dick appeared the only person who wasn't on the receiving end of a flinty email. Dick and me. I don't like to make assumptions about other people's prejudices, but we were the only two middle-aged white male managers in the office. The more I knew Tony, the less I liked him. Meanwhile, all this monkeying around in someone else's account had started me thinking about security more generally, and I decided to pay a visit to Giuseppe, who was on duty at the building front desk, which is where the rest of my department caught me half an hour later. Quilty! 
Lem shouted across the lobby. I jumped guiltily. He was shouting at me. Quilty takes some explaining, as all nicknames do. Nicknames tend to evolve over time, becoming increasingly ornate and obscure, like overly decorated species of butterfly or the aristocracy. Someone with a surname like Sweet naturally starts getting called Sour, and then Sourpuss, and Sour Patch Kid, uh, then Patch, which becomes for a couple of delirious months Patch Adams, before becoming Patchwork, then that becomes Quilt. But while nicknames naturally change, there walk among us those who have the strange ability to freeze them in place, to bestow a nickname in perpetuity. Lem is one of those people, and so Quilty I became. It doesn't help that he tends to shout it in the accents of James Mason as Humbert Humbert in Kubrick's film of Lolita. Where are you, Quilty? I'm hiding, I said, joining them. I'm not a good liar and have discovered that the best way to hide subterfuge is to tell the truth, just enough to be convincing, but not enough to actually reveal what you're up to. What are you up to? Christmas out in, said Lem. Come on, Quilty. We're going to Columbia Road, said Sue, who had evidently decided that since our trip to Narnia, we were now friends. Come on, Linus, it'll be fun. It was, to be fair, fun. Columbia Road is a little street of two-storey workers' terrace cottages in the east end of London that are no longer owned by anyone who would do anything so degrading as work, and the bottom floors of which are now exclusive little boutiques trading in rare vinyl and rarer cheeses. Every Wednesday evening in December, they have special Christmas late openings. There are fairy lights and Christmas trees in the street. There are baubles and wreaths in the shops. There are stalls for mulled wine, and occasionally someone will drag a piano out of the pub and start an impromptu carol concert. It's very seasonal, and thus very fun. This is more like it. Lem came striding up next to me. Christmas done properly. Speaking of which, jam this on your shiny pit, Quilty. He popped something on top of my head. I pulled it off. It was a woolen hat, embroidered to look like a Christmas pudding. There was a crocheted holly leaf on top. Come on, pudding head, said Lem. Get into the spirit of it. Even Sue's doing it properly, and she's usually a mess. Sue had on a pair of felt antlers, each tipped with a little bell that jingled as she jigged up and down to the Christmas music. I rather like Sue's style, I said, putting the hat back on. It's kind of a hip-hop Edwardian thing. Nonsense, said Lem. She should pick one or the other. You can't wear Nikes with knickerbockers. Lem, you literally have baubles hanging off your moustache, I said. You do ridiculous things all the time. What about creativity? Creativity needs rules, said Lem. Games need rules. That's what makes them fun. You break rules. You pay for it. Look at Tony. Are you saying Tony died because he broke rules? Cocaine is an illegal drug, isn't it? said Lem. He broke that rule and it literally killed him. You're just cross he nabbed that window seat off you, aren't you? I said. Too right, said Lem. That's my point. There was an agreement that made everyone happy. He broke it and made everyone unhappy. It's like all this. He gestured at the street around us. Christmas. We all agree on how it should be done. Spiced booze, stupid songs, silly hats. Everyone agrees. Everyone does it. 
Everyone's going to have a merry old time, aren't they, Linus? Are they? I wondered. Was Tony? Was the person who killed him? Was I? Because I was now pretty sure that Tony had been murdered, and I was pretty sure I knew who had done it, and now I was going to have to decide what I was going to do about it. You have been listening to Secret Satan, a workplace mystery presentation in 24 slides, written by Tobias Sturt and read by John Millington. Our music is Holiday Weasel by Kevin MacLeod from filmmusic.io and our illustrations are by Jamie Lenman, who you can find at jamielenman.com. Our Christmas stories are on Spotify, YouTube and Substack and you can find links to all of these on our website, christmasstories.co.uk or you can subscribe on your podcast app. Wherever you listen, please take time to rate and review and make sure you don't miss the next episode of Secret Satan. Thank you.